Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape our community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Between 2014 and 2019, suicide among black Americans increased by 30% and was the second leading cause of death among black Americans ages 15 to 24. And data from the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office shows that from 2019 to 2022, the number of suicides in black residents of all ages increased. Today, we get the opportunity to have someone who's faced suicidal thoughts share their story with us. Eddie Kennedy was born and raised in Milwaukee and has struggled with suicidal thoughts since he was very young. They are 27 now and works to help others through their mental health challenges as an advocate in the Milwaukee area. He speaks with WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell about his experience. And a note to our listeners, this conversation focuses on the topic of suicide and one individual's experience with suicidal thoughts. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry is one of several entities that report rates of suicide among black youth has risen faster than in any other racial and ethnic group in the past 20 years. And some predictors can be community violence, socioeconomic factors or stress, discrimination, stigma, the things, you know, we hear about all the time that contribute to disparities. When did you begin to have thoughts of suicide and what was happening to you that those feelings emerged? Kind of funny how you brought up socioeconomic issues that play a factor into why uh, Black identified youth are engaging in suicide ideation and self-harm. Because that's kind of play a part of my story a little bit. So um, as early as three years old, I had experienced thoughts of suicide and was even caught trying to uh, harm myself at such a young age. And I don't want to get too many too many details about what was going on around that age, but my mother, who is kind of the one person kind of remembers most of the details. I mostly remember the feelings, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of felt this energy around me since my entire life. But she was the one who kind of, you know, saw everything and she just said that I just wanted to, you know, die. And from what I remember as that young as a child, I felt like I felt like life wasn't really in my control. I really felt like I had like no options in anything. And it's kind of weird, three years old, you're feeling that at such a such a young age. But at that time, something really traumatic happened to me that made me feel like I didn't have, you know, power. I didn't have autonomy. I didn't have personhood and all these different things that are, you know, important to make a, a holistic person, you know? So growing up, Especially in the family background that I have, which is a, I come from a very criminalized family background. Most of my family have either experienced incarceration or have engaged in some form of criminal act, either for survival or because, you know, that was the community culture that they were around. They got indoctrinated into criminality. So that's all they knew. So like kind of growing up in a community and in a family that, that is like that. The average person barely has a high school education, uh, let alone a, a graduate education. The the quality of life that you have and the 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 venues and opportunities for what you can do with your life uh, lessons, and that also plays a part in uh, as I got older, some of the the suicidal thoughts. Um, again, already feeling like I don't have many options for myself. I don't really have a sense of personhood, and then as I get older, the systemic issues that I'm you know forced to face due to um, the lack of like generational wealth and, and pedigree 
and the kind of culture that I'm being raised around and in, you know, kind of played a factor in all that too. It, it withered me down um, a lot. I mean, withered down with my, my expectations for my own life, how long I can live that life, what I can do within that life. I mean, even if happiness was even uh, something that even could be something that can even be fought for, let alone achieved. So that was kind of like how I was growing up. It was just a really tough life and a lot of tough things going on. Eddie, I want to thank you for sharing that with me because this is a deeply personal topic and I appreciate your openness to share what you did. Saying that you were as young as three, having thoughts of harming yourself because of what was happening to you and what you were seeing around you, it reminds me of a conversation I had with another psychologist just about how a child being that young, having those sorts of thoughts of harming themselves, it's unfathomable for a lot of people. Yeah, sometimes these experiences, these thoughts can like manifest in in a young person at a very young age. And sometimes it's tied to trauma. Sometimes it's not really tied to trauma. Uh, That tends to be the issue that most folks tend to misunderstand when it comes to suicidal ideations, that it's always trauma informed or trauma brought, which isn't always the case. Sometimes people, you know, their minds or their brains or whatever, whatever it may have you, just doesn't really function in a sense that self-preservation and the sustaining of the self is really important. That also makes me think that we have to bring in resources to address these problems a lot earlier. I'm wondering if you received medical attention, what was that journey like for you? Because it's documented that mental health and substance use are often under-recognized, under-treated, and misdiagnosed in Black youth. Yeah, so there was medical intervention in my early adolescence. By the time I got into young childhood, to around the age of, um, I would say, like nine, we really didn't do therapy all that often, and it really wasn't really that highly recognized. I think, I don't really remember what stopped us going to therapy, but I'll, I'll remember it wasn't really a thing that was consistently part of my schedule, and at some point it kind of phased out of my life, but... The things that I were dealing with both like in within my my life, um, both as well as um, the suicidal thoughts that I was experiencing were still going on. Um, and then as I got older, it entered puberty and then like experiences of like exploring my sexual orientation uh, start to play a factor into that. And again, this is the early 2010s, uh, late 2000s. So like things weren't really even now things aren't really always peachy keen for queer people. Yeah. Uh, but even back then, it was like at that young of an age is like trying to figure those things out and you hear that you don't know what you are you know but yeah. you're being bombarded with messages that being a certain way makes you wrong you know yeah. so that you know adds on top of that too and then the the dealing with mental health issues um so like dealing with depression and bipolar disorder and ADHD were the things that were just on top of me as well Eddie, you bringing up the fact that therapy sort of phased out for you definitely, I think, aligns with data that says for Black youth, even if there is clinical intervention, we're more likely to get less quality care or less likely to even get follow-up care. In any case, do you feel like therapy helped you? (laughs) I enjoyed the experience of going to therapy and talking to my doctor. But even as an adult, that's kind of why as an adult, I went back and seek professional help because I as a kid I I loved it and it was really beneficial for me and you know it's beneficial for me now whenever I do have the chance 
uh, and the resources to go see a doctor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I like I do agree with you that um, black youth, whenever seeing a, a mental health professional, tend to be overdiagnosed with uh, things. That's something that one of my therapists and I, uh, my therapist's name is Kalechi. Uh, she's a, a black woman, uh, and I met her at a, a suicide prevention uh, conference. But that's something that we often discuss um, in some of our sessions is like our experiences with medical professionals and our mental health and like how we were how all the time black folks are just diagnosed, misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed or sometimes not even underdiagnosed or sometimes even underdiagnosed. Like for a while, like my ADHD, that wasn't really diagnosed because no, because back then it was kind of I think there was identified as two different diagnoses. So it was like ADHD and ADD. So most of the folks oftentimes associated ADHD with hyperactive behavior. And oftentimes the young people who had like a more were more who came off as more introspective and quiet weren't really not really all that pay attention to. But I was one of those people who uh, had a very active inner self. So like my mind was always active. It made it difficult to focus on tasks. It made it difficult for me to pay attention and retain information. But because I was quiet uh, <laughs> and non-disruptive, I was oftentimes not really diagnosed. Now, speaking of school, your peers, your family, I know you mentioned your mom really noticed what was happening to you and did what she could. Did people at your school, your friends, did they know you were struggling with your mental health, especially with suicidal thoughts. And did they know how to help? Um, to speak about my mom, um, when I was young, she uh, she was the one who kind of got me to therapy and everything. And like I said, she was the one who kind of who walked in and saw me trying to commit an act of self harm. So she was really involved as much as a as a young woman who got pregnant when she was a teenager, and as a form that she could be, you know, yeah. um, uh, as a young black mother could be. And even then, there were still particular pitfalls and loopholes that she just did not understand to communicate with me or be present for me with. And that's nothing against her. It's just that, you know, you know we all can't be informed, informed and educated and prepared for everything. So there's just going to be those pitfalls. And I think with my family, like I didn't, most folks, I really didn't feel like understood. Sometimes when people hear about someone like committing suicide, they often try to, they often, the first thing you usually hear is like, Oh, that's sad. And then they say, I don't understand why would someone do something like that. Yeah. And then it's that framework that the average human being just don't understand why would a person even have those type of thoughts and feelings and what would drive them to commit such an act. There's also the factor that um sometimes again, not everyone's informed. So not everyone has the the, the ability to create space for people to talk, but then not everyone even have the language to even be in conversation right. about these kinds of topics. And sometimes when you want to talk about it, you feel like uh, you don't really have anyone to talk to, or you don't have the ability to take up emotional capital about this. You know, you can't, you know, be big and, and sad, uh, especially in some in certain spaces where, you know, being big and sad and very transparent about the fact that you're, willing, you're thinking about self-harming yourself can get you admitted. But not a whole lot of people want that experience or want to go back to such an experience. Um, I've personally never really been admitted and hearing stories from friends and peers I've had that were, never want to experience something like that. So you, you really can't take emotional capital because <laughs> some people look at that like, oh, red flag, red flag, this is an unstable emotional person. Like we, we have to lock them up somewhere and do something about that. Were you ever embarrassed that you were having struggles with your mental health? Yeah, it, there was a sense of embarrassment because 
you do recognize there's something different about yourself from other people and that other people got this 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 thing about them where they I don't know. Not, I don't want to say like value themselves because like, I want to say that not all people who experience suicidal ideation don't value themselves because right. that's not always the case. But they have this thing where they don't have to carry that weight with them. And you can tell <laughs> yeah. it does get embarrassing because you're like, why can I be like that? Why am I always thinking about this thing or always feel like I'm one inch away from doing something that I might regret? Or yeah. and there's also the factor that, um, you know, you can sometimes feel shame especially with how some people usually just have like talk about suicidal ideation and how you try to pull people from out of that. Cause it oftentimes people try to say to pull someone from out of that type of thinking is, well, you have so many people that care about you. You have all mm-hmm. these friends and, uh, and especially, and it's kind of weird to say if you don't know that person to say those type of things, because you don't know if they do have a community or support system that care about them. And even if they do, you don't know if that's a healthy one. You don't right. know if that's the, What's, that's contributing to why they have these thoughts and feelings. Also, it's, it's kind of like emotional guilt tripping in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like, how dare you want to not want to be here? Then, what all the things you got to do for other people and right. all the people that you know, rely on or you? Or like you're selfish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you're selfish. And it's like I'm not selfish because I think about this and I feel this. It's a lot of stress. It's a mm-hmm. lot of shame. It's a lot of. It's a lot of that I really don't want to be thinking about. So yeah, it's a um, it, it there is a lot of a, like embarrassment, uh, and like I say, like you don't really get the the emotional capital to talk about it, so that that embarrassment deepens because like you don't have a community to like kind of go to and just be yourself with, you know, yeah. um, in the few spaces that people have, like online spaces that where people go to to talk about suicidal ideation and self harm aren't really always the healthiest, mm-hmm. um, and they always don't really. Su- creates avenues to get support or tools of uh, of betterment. I'm not to say that all the spaces are like that, but like sometimes the internet is not the best space to try to find community, uh, especially yeah. when it comes to mental health. <laughs> yes. You know. Eddie, is suicidal ideation something that always lingers with you? And if so, what helps you? So I went on a long treacherous journey on dealing with my suicidal ideation then it's something that still exists I still think about it it's still pitter patters in my head like a baby like a newborn baby or something but over years of learning to advocate for myself and kind of that being the vessel in which I've actually ended up getting more help for myself was through advocacy it made my life a bit better it made managing that a little bit better it made developing a a sense of self-preservation easier it's like you know yes i'm dealing with this yes i have these thoughts but i'm also i owe it to myself to at least have an experienceable life you know yeah. i owe it to myself to at least you know exist even if i'm not happy with it <laughs> you know i owe myself at least that that bare minimum so that's owe it to myself to exist Eddie Kennedy is a mental health advocate. He spoke with WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter, Taryn Powell. If you or anyone that you know is in a crisis or thinking about suicide, trained help is available for you. You can talk to someone at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. 
You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lake effect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight podcast. 